So today, because it's uh, Palm Sunday, um, we're going to take a little bit of a detour from our work, working our way through the book of John. We're right at the end of John chapter 17, and there's two more verses at the end of Jesus' prayer that we do want to talk about. But today, because, of, because it's Palm Sunday, because we're anticipating the uh, Holy Week, the, the celebration of the resurrection, the remembrance of the cross on Friday that I thought it would be good and to to focus on that a little bit today. And so uh, all we're going to do to do that is just move one, <laughs> just into the next chapter, which is where we're going to be going uh, soon anyway. And uh, to think about to think about the time of this text that we've been studying, this prayer of Jesus and the uh, upper room discourse, which is uh, going all the way back to chapter 13. We've been looking at it for quite a while now. Uh, and so I thought, well, let's think about, we're, we're in that week, and now, of course, at the end of this prayer of Jesus, we're, we're at the very last hours before uh, the cross. And, and so I was thinking, well, it's been quite a little while, actually, since we were since we studied uh, all the way back in chapter what is it chapter twelve. Uh, it's been a while since we looked at that at that Palm Sunday passage, you know, the Hosanna passage, and when we when we did that, um, we. We read this text about the people crying out Hosanna. And that word Hosanna is literally, Lord, save us, save us. It's a recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. Now, we studied this text back in May of last year, so it's been a few months. But you might remember we asked the question, well, how do we go from, in a week, from Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify him, really less than a week, right? you know, five, five days. So this, this same nation who was proclaiming Christ as Messiah, within a few days we go from this acclamation of Christ as, as the anointed one, Messiah, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, to shouts of crucify him. How does that happen? How does that happen? What caused that? Well, in the text I want to look at today, it, we see another case. I think of the same thing. And the case is the apostle, Peter. And the story has a bit of a focus on Peter. Uh, in chapter 18, right after this prayer. <clears throat> so, when this is now chapter 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, 
and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing there with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he asked again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So the Roman cohort and the commanders and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Simon Peter, following Jesus, was following Jesus, and so was another disciple, probably John. Now that, the, now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl, who was the doorkeeper, said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. And then uh, the passage goes into uh, the interview between the high priest and Jesus, and then uh, Jesus is sent to Caiaphas. So he's sent from one high priest to another high priest, from Annas to Caiaphas. So then the story of Peter continues. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Didn't I see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. What I want to observe is uh, there's a similar path going on with Peter to the one that is happening in the people from Hosanna to crucify him. Uh, And in fact, I think what I'd like to do is sort of trace that story of Peter through the book of John really windy out here today, so uh, be patient. I want to think about, well, what's, what's going on with Peter? 
Um, something's going on with Peter. So let's think about Peter in the book of John. If you go back to verse, or sorry, chapter 6, in chapter 6 of the book of John, uh, Jesus is, you know, doing his thing, and people don't like something he says, and so they're, they're abandoning him. People are leaving, not following Jesus anymore, according to the text. And so Jesus asks the disciples who are with him, he says, so, will you leave me as well? And this was Peter's response. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's Peter in chapter 6. Now, if we fast forward ahead a little bit in the story, we come to chapter 13. So now we're in that Last Supper conversation, and Jesus gets up, we find in chapter 13, and he, he's washing the disciples' feet. Peter's really offended by this because the task of washing feet is, is for a really lowly servant. It is not for the Lord. And he says this to Jesus, he says, you can't wash my feet. You're the Lord, not the slave. So you, you know the story. Jesus says to him, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you, you have nothing to do with me. <laughs> so Peter does a pretty fast turnaround and he says, well, then wash my hands and my head too. What, well, what's he saying? He's saying, well, Whatever it takes to be with you, I will be with you. Just like he said in chapter 6, I got nowhere else to be. I can't leave you. you have, you're the Messiah. You're the one who has the words of eternal life. And then in chapter 13, it's, it's the reason Peter's offended is because this is the Lord. He recognized Jesus as Messiah, the Christ, the anointed king of Israel. And it's not right for that person to wash his feet. So these are great proclamations of loyalty to the Lordship of Christ from, from Peter. Later on in chapter 13, I think I want to look this one up, uh, chapter 13. Uh, you know, Jesus is talking about how he's going to be leaving them. And they're all freaked out by this. So Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Now this is verse 37 of chapter 13. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter's not messing around. He is absolutely committed to Jesus. He believes Jesus to be the Messiah. He can't understand why Jesus would go somewhere and he can't go with him. He wants to be with Jesus. Jesus answered him and said, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a roaster, a roaster, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Now, if you read this story in the book of Mark or in the book of Matthew, that's not the end of that conversation. In Mark and in Matthew, where when Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me before morning three times, 
Peter is not having it. He says, I will not. He, he argues with the Lord. He says, no, I won't. And also in those accounts, we, we read that all the other disciples said, we won't either. <laughs> now we know they all abandoned Christ. Uh, and Peter did, in fact, deny him. What happened? What happened? Now, <clears throat> of course, this isn't the end of the story. We just read in chapter 18. Now, this is after Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me three times before morning. And Peter says, I will not. No way. It's impossible. Well, Peter wasn't kidding. Peter wasn't lying. When he said that, he knew it was true. He knew in his heart there was no way he could abandon Jesus. Not one way. Now, when we come to the garden, we see, well, we, we see it hasn't changed. His commitment is still very real. Now, here's what happens there. They get to the garden, and Judas brings the soldiers and the representatives of the uh, authorities. And the, apparently they're in some kind of enclosure with a wall, and Jesus goes to the gate and says, who are you looking for? Now, Jesus knows, it says right here, Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth, went forward, went to these men who had come to arrest him. Went to them. Now, they were all armed. They've got lanterns. They're, they're equipped to hunt Jesus down. They're, I think, anticipating that they're going to have to search in the dark in this garden to find him. No, comes right out to meet them. He says, who are you looking for? He says, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. They say, I am he. Now, it's interesting because John messes with the wording here, and the phrase is ego eimi, I am. <laughs> now, we all recognize that phrase. I am is a statement of divinity, and it's also just how you would say, I'm the guy you're looking for. So there's a little play on words here, but they are surprised, to say the least, when this guy comes out, they, he says, who are you looking for? They say, we're looking for Jesus, and he says, I am. <laughs> That's their reaction. They, they don't expect this person to volunteer himself, and he comes right out and he says, I am he. And they're literally taken aback. It says they drew back and fell to the ground. I think they sort of stepped back and they're tripping over each other and they're falling down. Now, another way of reading this, of course, is his declaration, I am, has real power and sort of knocks them down. Okay, that's possible. Um, but in any case, <laughs> they're struggling. They get up. He says, uh, again, he says, well, who, who are you looking for? He says, Jesus. He says, I told you, it's me. If you seek me, let these guys go. And John tells us this is a fulfillment. And I think we have to say it that way. It's a fulfillment of his words. I have not lost a single one of the ones you've given me. We know it's only a fulfillment because when he says, 
I will not lose a single one. He says, I will raise them up in the last day. But in any case, that's when Peter arms himself. I just want you to think about it. Peter's the guy who said, <clears throat> Peter's the guy who said, I have nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. Peter's the guy who said, you can't wash my feet. Oh, okay, if you need to, wash. I am all in Jesus. And then Peter's the guy who says, when Jesus says, I can't, you can't come with me now, he says, I'll lay down my life for you. And he is not kidding around. And we know he's not kidding around because right here in chapter 18, what does Peter do? He takes out a sword and he goes after the slave of the high priest. Now think about who this guy is. He's the servant of the high priest. And Peter said, wartime. It's on. That's Peter. Peter said, it's on. The battle is on. Now, we should observe that Jesus and Peter have very different agendas. This is something, obviously, Peter doesn't understand. Jesus is volunteering to be arrested. We know that because right after this incident, it says the cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. There was no other fight. Jesus isn't fighting. Jesus is volunteering to be arrested. Now, Peter gets out the sword and he goes after this guy. He cuts off his ear. <laughs> and, you know, you don't cut off a guy's ear because you were trying to cut off his ear. <laughs> but in any case, Jesus says, put that sword away. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Now, I think it's safe to assume at this point, this is after the agonizing prayer of Jesus, which is not recorded in the book of John. Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but thine. Here, there's no indecision. He says, the cup which the Father has given me, shouldn't I drink it? Shall I not drink it? He's committed. He's volunteering to get arrested. That's what happened to Peter. Peter, put that sword away. Well, I think that what happened to Peter was the same thing that, had, that drove the, the nation, the crowd of people from Hosanna, Hosanna, you're the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Messiah, save us, save us. Those people went from Hosanna to crucify him. Peter went from, I'm ready to kill for Christ, to, uh, no, I'm not, it's not me. I don't know him. And I think what happened was, uh, disappointment. There was a hope. Peter was completely invested in the hope of Messiah, Jesus. What happened? Well, I think you see what happened to Peter in 
in this. So Jesus said to Peter, Put that sword away. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So the cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. That's what happened to Peter. Have you ever had this experience where you were rebuked by someone you really looked up to? Rebuked for doing something you thought was right and good and should be appreciated, but instead of appreciation, you were rebuked, not appreciated, the opposite of appreciated. I remember when I was a kid, I don't know what got into me. I think I've told this story before. Uh, my ma, I, we were in the car. I, it's a kind of vague memory, but we're in the car. I'm in the back seat. My mom said something to me, and I stuck my head up and I said, "Yes, ma'am." Just kind of like that. Yes, ma'am. Well, that wasn't our normal way of addressing our mom. I was just kind of being goofy and enthusiastic, and you know, I don't. I did not normally address my mother as ma'am. And my father thought I was mocking her, thought I was sarcastic. Yes, ma'am. And uh, so I received the punishment for my exuberant respect, which was genuine. I thought I was doing better than usual, and I was punished by the person I looked up to the most, I suppose. Well, that is really, really confusing and discouraging. You've probably had a similar experience. You know, maybe you put your heart and soul into some work assignment or school assignment, and got it horribly wrong when you thought you got it right. That's what happened to Peter. He was ready to die for Jesus. When he said, no way will I ever leave you, he wasn't wrong. He wasn't lying. He meant it. He really meant it. And we know he really meant it because right there when it really mattered, he got out his sword and went after the enemy for Christ. But that isn't who Christ is. So Peter had a very high expectation and a completely wrong expectation, just like the people. What was that expectation? Well, they were... Jews under Roman occupation, and so their expectation of Messiah was a particular kind of salvation. Today, when people cry out to God, what, what are they looking for? What kind of salvation are they looking for? 
here's our problem. The kind of salvation we're looking for is not the kind of salvation Jesus came to deliver. So we're probably going to find Jesus disappointing. We, we might invest a lot of hope in some kind of salvation that's less than, what the, than the salvation that Jesus provides. These folks, Peter included, they were looking for a political salvation. The Messiah is the king who restores justice to Israel, who overthrows Israel's oppressors. Sometimes we think we need political salvation. It's the problem of the world is we don't have the right people in charge. And we think God, we expect God to fix it. The, the salvation they were looking for was also a, a national salvation, or you could even say a tribal salvation. It was about Israel, their nation. And the Messiah is the king who casts off oppression, who judges the other nations, who restores our national identity as Israel, the chosen people of God. I'm afraid we do things like this too, uh, you know, as an American, I think I need to remind myself, Jesus is not an American. And the salvation he provides is not about saving American constitutional democracy. That's how a lot of Christians think. That's a lot what, where we're putting a lot of our hope something political or national. And, I, you know, I'm sure that applies in other cultures and other nationalities. We are expecting the Lord to do something about our national identity, our cultural identity. The, the salvation we're often looking for, these people were for sure, is also kind of a temporal one. It's... It, it's Messiah restoring the blessings of this life, of prosperity, of the good life. And often Christians think along these lines that Jesus, what he, what he means to give us is a better life in this life. Uh, you know, so we have, so we're healthy, or we have the prosperous resources, our business does well. And we call all those things blessings. Sometimes those things happen and they're not even blessings. They kind of wreck us in some situations. But that's the sort of salvation we're looking for. And that's the sort of salvation that's, that Jesus is going to disappoint. Sometimes these people were looking for a vindication of their own righteousness. These people were law-keeping people. These people were people who studied the law of Moses, who knew it, and who obeyed it as a general rule. Though obviously not perfectly. They weren't non-sinners, but they did what God commanded. This is like the rich young ruler. and Jesus, the, He comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you know, keep the law. <laughs> Jesus lays the law on that guy to such a degree that the guy figures out he can't keep it, and he goes away sad. Jesus says, hey, well, love your neighbor. Why don't you sell all your possessions? In fact, he doesn't say, why don't you? He says, here's what you have to do if you're really going to call yourself a law keeper. Because this guy actually said to Jesus, I've kept the law since I was a child. 
Well, no, he hadn't. And Jesus shows him by saying, well, here's, if you're really going to follow the whole law all the way, what you would do is sell everything and give your possessions to, your poor, to the poor, love your neighbor as yourself. Like, I can't do it. But the people in Israel were looking for a Messiah who would recognize their righteousness. Well, Jesus is just going to be a big, giant disappointment if that's what you're looking for. But finally, I guess mostly, the people of Israel and all of us, when we think there's someone going to save us, what we're looking for is a great man, a great person, a person of greatness, a powerful king who will set things right, and he will do so forcefully. <laughs> Let's think about Jesus and how he measures up to this expectation. When these guys come to wrongfully arrest him, Jesus goes out to meet them and says, here I am. And Peter says, no, time to go to war. And Jesus says, put that sword away. I'm here to drink the cup the Father has given me. I'm going to be crucified. Now, Jesus has been talking about this, talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. When he first started talking about it, according to the other Gospels, Peter said, no, that's not going to happen to you. I won't allow it. <laughs> and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not helping, Peter. But Peter didn't get that rebuke either. Jesus says, should I not drink the cup the Father's given me? See, the death of the cross is the only path for our redemption. But they weren't looking for that sort of redemption. We don't understand how big of a redemption we need. So if you want that kind of Savior, Jesus is going to be a big disappointment. I don't find God by looking up, but by looking down. I don't find God by self-improvement, by moving up so that he will come to appreciate my goodness and righteousness. The scripture says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the way God redeems us is not by coming as powerful king, but by coming as sacrificial lamb. It's the opposite of what we think we need. Jesus is the answer to a question that none of us are asking. The scripture says no one seeks God. Jesus is the crucified God. That is not where God belongs. Jesus is not some kind of exalted commander, leader, conqueror, He's servant of all. 
He humbles himself, he humbles himself, he humbles himself, he humbles himself so much that he gets himself killed as the enemy of Israel when he is Israel's Messiah. They weren't looking for that. They don't admire that. So when Peter takes up the sword to fight for his Lord and King, Messiah Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and says, put that thing away. You are getting in the way, Peter. He is crushed. He's crushed. He doesn't know what to do. He's thrown. He goes. He follows. They, Jesus just lets them take him. Peter follows. He's, he doesn't know what to do. He's standing there and someone says, hey, aren't you? I don't even know the guy. No. He's, he's completely lost. I think I want to say to you, give up. Give up your idea of salvation. Your political, tribal, temporal, self-righteous, great, King Savior, for the humble Savior, for the crucified Christ. Paul says we preach Christ crucified, that passage we read earlier. We preach Christ crucified, a scandal to the Jews and pure stupidity to the Gentiles. Well, we come to the stupidity, the stupid Savior, the scandalous Savior who gives himself up for us because he is the Lord God, the eternal Son. You know, in, uh, we've been talking about that Jesus is not the sort of Savior we think we need. And my, my goal in talking about Peter in this respect is to talk about us. Because, you know, we get all sort of Christian-y and Christianized, and we think we're not like that. We're not the kind of people who expect the wrong Savior. We know what, what kind of Savior Jesus was. But I think it would be fruitful for us to think about how we pray, about what we're hoping for when we cry out to God and to ask ourselves, are we asking for something less than what he provides? Am I looking for a political solution, a cultural solution, a better life solution, uh, appreciate my own goodness solution? Or am I looking for the Savior that I desperately need because I am, in fact, unrighteous before God? So if we wanted to think about that uh, sort of salvation that we actually have, I, I like to look at Romans chapter 5, the first several verses of that, where we read this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope 
of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And this hope does not disappoint us, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. All of that comes from the work of the cross of Christ. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What were we? Helpless. The salvation we're looking for is not the salvation of the helpless. It's God helps those who help themselves. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though maybe for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now have received the reconciliation. This is the salvation we have from Christ. It's, a, it's not an insurrection against the oppressive authorities. It's a resurrection from the oppressive death of sin. It's an overthrow not of the troublesome Romans. It's an overthrow of the dominion of sin and death. It's not for one nation, it's for anyone of any nation. It goes to all cultures and it builds a new kingdom. It's not about the vindication of Israel as a kingdom. It's about one new man in Christ, the kingdom of Christ, established by the death, resurrection, ascension, sitting at the right hand, returning in glory, Christ. It's not about a better life. It's not about improving my immediate circumstances and situation, but about eternal life. And we've learned right here in John chapter 17, eternal life is life in fellowship with the living God in his son, Jesus Christ. It's not a vindication of our righteousness. It's not God's judgment saying, yeah, you're okay with me, except it's a vindication of God's righteousness. It's God solving the problem. How can he be righteous and let us continue in our unrighteousness? And so we are, he vindicates his righteousness by including us in the righteousness of Christ, only possible because of the cross of Christ. It's not a person of greatness that we look up to, but a person of absolutely perfect humility who set himself beneath even me in order to lift us up in him. In Christ, we're justified, we're reconciled, we've obtained access by faith to grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The glory of God is something we hope for, not something we fear. 
<laughs> we rejoice even in suffering, as we studied last time. We appreciate the opportunity to get to know Christ by sharing in the sufferings of Christ, by loving someone for Christ's sake and in his name. And in this we find endurance, we build character, and our hope is built up. And this is not the hope of some temporal, political, national, self-righteous salvation that we might find by siding with the right king. It's true hope that does not disappoint. True hope that's grounded in the love of God, that love which is poured out in our hearts by the third person of the triune God, the very Holy Spirit of God, who comes to dwell in those who believe and sheds abroad, as the old way said, the love of God in our hearts. So the Spirit of God communicates the love of God on the basis of the cross of Christ. And obviously this love has its greatest demonstration in the cross of Christ right here in Romans 8, Romans 5, sorry, he says, <laughs> God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, still against him, Christ died to redeem us. The Jewish people, Peter, us, right? that's not the kind of Savior we're looking for. The Savior who fails, who gets himself killed in the most humble way. But that is the way God has actually provided actual salvation. Glorious salvation. It's completely upside down. No one would ever think this up. Crucified God. It's completely upside down, but it's a hope that does not disappoint. A hope in the glory of God. You know, if you got the Savior you were looking for, you'd still be dead in your trespasses and sins. Because you wouldn't actually be reconciled to God. What if Peter, you know, succeeded in saving Christ by picking up his sword? Well, that wasn't going to happen because God intends to save his people. The Savior they were looking for was not the one he was providing. Can I encourage you in the light of this, to think about how you can develop hope in the long run. You know, in this time in our history, I find myself exercising hope on a kind of daily basis. Every day, here in Bonaire at least, they uh, post on the internet, and I get it on Facebook, they post the, the COVID numbers, right? Every day, I check to see if it's come out yet. I look for it because I'm hoping that we'll sort of hit the peak and start going back down in the right direction. I'm hoping, I'm hoping. Now, that's not a bad thing to hope for. That would be fantastic if, if uh, we started getting well from this disease. 
but I need to develop a hope that looks farther. I need to develop a hope that is a hope in the glory of God, that is, in fact, delivered by the person of Christ. And I need to rest myself in that hope, trust myself to that salvation. You know, I could uh, get a solution to my financial problems. Uh, The medicine could work. My family problems could get resolved. Those are things I hope for in the short run. But in the end, the hope that does not disappoint, that cannot disappoint, is our hope in Christ that is grounded in the the love of Christ communicated to our souls by the Spirit. I need to develop a longer view for my hope, to look through, around, over, past my immediate situation, the thing I'm probably praying about the hardest, to the salvation that is already delivered to me in Christ and has the promise of resurrection for the future. The actual reversal of death. That hope will not be disappointed. So I want to encourage you, whatever challenging situation you're in today, and you're no doubt in one kind of challenging situation or another, whatever it is, Will you let go and rest yourself in Him? Scripture says this is our spiritual service of worship. In view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, we're looking at God's mercy, justified, reconciled, access to God, standing before God, rejoicing in hope, knowing the love of Christ communicated directly into our soul, by our hearts, by the Spirit of God. (laughs) Resting in that. Resting in that. Now that'll help me deal with whatever I have to deal with today. But that hope will not be disappointed. Christ is coming. The resurrection is around the corner. Uh, And so we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Father, we give you thanks for this great hope, and we look to it. We rest ourselves in it. We trust in it. We trust in you. We trust in Christ. We thank you for the ministry of the Spirit in our hearts for these things. Help us, Lord, to live in the love of Christ and to share that love with the people we meet day by day. Help us to communicate this grace because we walk in it every day. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.